pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would go before them, Lord, preparing the way, preparing hearts, preparing the message that you've given them. Lord, that it would land on good soil, as Pastor Wick talked about this morning, the seeds that were sown. And Lord, we pray that the seeds that are sown on this mission trip, Lord, that they would bear much fruit. And uh, Father, we uh, just pray for the, all of the prayer requests in the bulletin, Lord. There's so many needs, uh, Lord, uh, health concerns, Father, that we see. God, there's, uh, in our world, there's so many things going on that we just want to lift up in prayer, like Ukraine, Lord. Father, we pray for our local government. We pray, uh, Lord, lifting up all the things in our bulletin. Lord, we lift up Paul Simcox to you this morning, who will uh, be going uh, for back surgery this week, Lord, and we just pray that you would be with Paul, that you give him peace, Lord, and we pray that his surgery would be a success, Father, and uh, that his back problems would be corrected, Lord. Uh, we lift up uh, uh, Pastor Paul, Lord, and his family and the things that they're facing during this time, Father, and we just pray that you would be with them, Lord, and of course we pray for their healing, And uh, but Father, we, we trust you and we know that uh, God, you know everything, that you're in control, and that you're good all the time. And so uh, this morning, as we uh, continue in worship, Lord, we pray for Pastor Wick. We thank you, Lord, that you have prepared a message and put it on his heart and mind, Lord, and that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to receive what you've provided for us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, children, come on down front. It's time for the kids' story. Come on down, come on down. Grab a seat on the floor. Here they come. All right, today I have a, we have a little bit of a slideshow for you. I got interested once in dangerous animals. So I don't want to scare you today, but I'm going to show you some pictures of dangerous animals. So let's see the first one. There is a dangerous animal. And what I wanted to find out was uh, basically what are the, what are sort of the attack and death rates that these animals cause. Now that's a pleasant topic for kids, okay? You don't have to worry about this happening to you in Nebraska. But uh, sharks, these horrible looking beasts are just pure killing and hunting machines. There are about 10 incidents a year globally where people are killed by a shark. It's not very many given the fact that the population of the earth is, what, 7 billion now? So it's very, very rare. Let's see another one, another dangerous animal. It's a wolf. Beautiful animals, and uh, they have a reputation for being very fierce and very dangerous. There are a few animals, uh, wolves, in the United States. I don't know if there are any in Nebraska. You don't have to really worry about these either. And another reason why you don't really have to worry very much about them is that there are not very many wolf attacks. It doesn't happen very often. In fact, there's sort of a question mark by this. Uh, they're really hard on livestock, on sheep and cows and so on. So that's, that's the tough thing about wolves, but not so much people. Uh, let's see another one here. Oh, well, this one could be a problem. What is this? That's not just a bear. That's a grizzly bear. Okay, these things are huge. And uh, yes, they are rather dangerous. Um, there are, at last year, there were 44 grizzly bear attacks in our national parks, 44 times. Now, not every one of them was fatal, but that's, uh, let's put it this way. They say, whatever kills you makes you stronger, except for bears. Bears will kill you. So, careful about grizzly bears. 
Here's another animal that's actually rather dangerous. Now, these you probably have in Nebraska. I know that's not very far away up to the Black Hills where there's big herds of bison. They don't chase after people on purpose to get them, but if you wander out in a field full of bison, somebody, one of them might get the idea to get you out of the field and in the process of butting you with its head and get you with its horns and you could be killed. And there actually are about 10 deaths a year from people who don't have any common sense and who walk out in a field full of bison. Let's see another one here. Well, lions, of course, are famous for being ferocious. And uh, we have no wild lions in Nebraska, but there are lots of them in Africa. And about 100 people a year are killed in lion attacks. Let's see another dangerous one. Rhinos. That looks like it would hurt running into one of those. And they also kill about 100 people a year. They are very bad dispositions. Let's see another one here. Elephants, actually, cause a lot of trouble. They also kill about 100 people a year in Africa and in India. Let's see some more. Hippos. Now, this is the one that amazes me. Because you know that hippos don't eat meat. They don't hunt other animals. They just have a really, really bad disposition. And if they, if they decide to chomp on you, that would not be a good thing. And in Africa, they account for about 500 deaths a year. Five times as many as lions. Did you know that? Also, they're pretty fast. So they, they're big and fast, and they're not happy. So let's see some more. Uh, oh, man, what's this? That is an alligator. Alligators cause a lot of problems here. Well, let me put it this way. Their cousins, the crocodiles, cause a lot of problems. About 1,000 people a year are killed by crocodiles. Alligator deaths here in North America, only about one a year. However, do not pet them, okay? Do not touch the alligators. All right, let's see another one here. Ah, cobra. Cobras and other poisonous snakes account, this is incredible, poisonous snakes account for 50,000 deaths a year worldwide. So that's not so much around here. Uh, you can even get bit by a rattlesnake and pretty much, well, survive it. I know up in Minnesota we even have those, but they're so tiny there, all you get is a little bump on your hand. It's not so bad, but they're dangerous. Let's see some more dangerous animals. Oh, boy. What's the most dangerous animal of all? Probably a human being. Human beings kill other human beings at the rate of about 450,000 every year. But that's not even the most dangerous of God's creatures. Here's the most dangerous. What's that? It's a mosquito. Mosquito bites kill over a million people a year, not because of the bite itself, but because it passes on malaria. I went to India eight years ago on a mission trip, was there for two weeks, and before I went, we had to take anti-malaria medicine for two weeks before the whole time we were there and two weeks after we got home because you get that, that little organism in you that comes from the mosquito bite and it'll kill you. By the way, that looks like a Minnesota mosquito. The ones in India, they're just wimpy. They're little tiny things. I thought, what in the world? And yet they can pass that disease on to you. So what's the point of this story? Not to scare you, but to remind you of something. Sometimes it's the little things that get us. You know, the big sins like, uh, oh, I don't know, robbing a bank or killing somebody and so on. Yeah, of course you're not going to do those things. But, oh, well, we can get away with the little ones. 
No, the little ones are just as dangerous as the big ones. So if you confess your sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Live right, boys and girls, and watch out for the little things. You can take your seats. The big people, too, watch out for the little things. Well, this morning we'll begin a series uh, for Lent. Ash Wednesday was this past Wednesday. I, don't, I didn't see anybody here at Awana with a smudge in their forehead because um, we Baptists and Bereans, we don't do that stuff. But at any rate, uh, I think it's good to utilize the Christian calendar once in a while, remembering the Advent season, remembering the Lenten season. The toughest thing for a preacher is the Advent season and the Lenten season because if you're at a church for any length of time, how do you come up with something new every year? It's, it's the old, old story, right? And it, it's, I guess we never get tired of hearing it, but you like to have a little different slant on it. I love interim work because I can pull out my favorite one that I've done. I don't have to worry. You haven't heard me do this one. Um, I, one of the things that... Uh, when I was working on my doctorate, I was in spiritual formation, and uh, I did a particular aspect, corporate. But some of the things that are involved in spiritual formation have to do with using Scripture to you know, really develop yourself spiritually, to hear from God. And in the process of that, I noticed something about Scripture. There are a lot of questions in the Bible, a lot of questions in the Bible. It starts with, Adam, where art thou? God knew where Adam was. He wanted Adam to think about where he was. Why are you hiding in the bushes? You see? Uh, have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat? That's another question. Who told you you were naked? That's another question. And so on. Genesis is full of questions that God asks of people that are interesting to think about. So that got me thinking about other things. And there are some questions that are in the New Testament accounts of our Lord's passion that are good for us to think about. So this is going to seem a little odd, but we're starting after the resurrection, even though it's just the beginning of Lent, and looking at one of the questions this morning, there will be six more, Lord willing. And the question is simply this, who will roll away the stone? Mark chapter 15, beginning with verse 44. Uh, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should already have died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Who will roll away the stone? Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd speak to us this morning through your word as we think about the implications of this question and why it was asked. Help us, Lord, to apply it 
to our walk with you, Jesus. We ask these favors in your name. Amen. Seven last questions. I want to start with a personal story, personal application. Back in 1977, uh, we left Philadelphia and started in February in Minnesota. First time I went overseas, I went to Siberia in January. Why would you go to Minnesota in February? That's when it started. And I started a church plant. Started a church plant in Maple Grove, Minnesota. And uh, went pretty well at first. We started with zero. Uh, I got a list of people who had dropped out of other North American Baptist churches. And I went and saw them and we gathered a, a crew. It was sort of like the Dirty Dozen initially. And uh, one of our original neighbors where we lived uh, in some temporary housing also got on board right away. And right around Easter time in 1977, we started. And we eventually got to about 20 families about halfway through this time. And uh, attendance was running in the 50s, and then sometimes it'd bump up and we'd have 70 if a few visitors came. And so we were moving along after a year and a half. And then stuff happened. Some people got burnt out. Uh, there were some people who had some job transfers and and pretty soon we were down to 12 or 13 families. And all this time is happening, our outside financial support was going down. So there was a lot of stress. Dave was stressed. Um, it was not a happy time. I, I felt this responsibility. I had a dream for a particular kind of church, um, a, a way of doing church, and I won't even go into that. That's not, that's not that important, but it was just different. I come from a very traditional experience in, in, in Philly. And I was frustrated with, with the fact that uh, we had some opportunities to do some ministry that we didn't do. Um, people were being very cautious, uh, protecting their assets and resources in that situation. It was, it was very discouraging because opportunities were missed. And, I, and that was one of the reasons. Then I was recruited by somebody to go into church planting. And you know I was kind of a, a, a bright, brash young guy um, at the time. Uh, when I, they said when I went uh, to Philly and became pastor after two years as the youth pastor, I had, uh, I had long hair and short sermons. When I left, I had short hair and long sermons. And, uh, but I had an idea, see, and, I had, and this idea was falling apart. Uh, we had elder leadership. That was something that was different rather than a deacon board and so on. Oh, did everything right, I thought, and it was not hanging together. And finally, it really was not going well. And there was a night in 1980... Uh, we'd been there three years, and uh, there was a night when I just broke, and I was crying, and I was down in the living room. I think Pat slept through it, I don't know, but, uh, and uh, I just gave up. But in the process of this, I had tried to find my answer to that. Financial support was going down. Uh, we were getting a lot of pressure from the region and so on to do things a different way, et cetera. It was very discouraging, and so um, I was looking for a job. And uh, I tried a couple of things, and one of them was uh, Hennepin County was hiring sheriffs and deputy sheriffs. And so I applied to be a deputy sheriff, and I went through, passed the physical tests they had to go through, and I was in pretty good shape at that time. Um, I, but I don't think I'd be able to do that now. The one, one I remember is we had, a, we had a jump through a window that was about that far off the ground, and head first and then enroll and so on. I hit pretty hard. The guy said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm okay. Um, it was made out of rubber in those days. At any rate, um, took the psychological profile. They asked me a lot of questions. This is a side point, but this is kind of interesting to me. One of the questions they said is, 
Um, because the first five years you're a deputy sheriff, you'll be a prison guard at the Hennepin County Jail. I didn't know that when I applied for this, so it didn't appeal to me. But at any rate, um, what happens if there's a fight in a cell? You hear a ruckus and there's a fight in a cell. What's the first thing you do? And I'm not a fighter, I'm a runner. So I said, I go get help. And the guy said, just a minute. He said, I want you to know something. You're one of the few people that answered that question correctly. He said, most guys, they have some martial arts training and they're going to go break up the fight. And that is the last thing you do. The first thing you do is get some help. So, oh, okay. So I was to check the box there. And another thing he said, you're escorting a prisoner from the, pris from the jail to the courtroom. And that's one of the things deputy sheriffs do. And uh, he has to go to the bathroom along the way. So you've got a bathroom there at the courthouse. And he goes in the bathroom and he doesn't come out. And after a while, you go in and check and he's gone. What's the first thing you do? And I said, I call my supervisor and tell him he got away. He said, that's right. And the same guy who told me, we don't get that answer very often. Usually we get, we, I start looking for him. He said, no, you don't. The first thing you do is let somebody know that you lost him. It's not going to look good on your record, but that is the first thing that you do. So I did okay on the test, so I got a call one day. There were 1,500 applicants for 12 positions. No, 10 positions. 1,500. And the guy says to me, you're 13th on the list. And he said, if, if you say we can go ahead and do the background check, I'll guarantee you you get a job because at least half of the people in front of you will either not pass the background check or they'll say they don't want it done. And at that moment, I got a newsflash from God. He wanted me to be a minister, not a jail guard. So I said, no, I, I don't think so. I said, not that I wouldn't pass the background check. He said, yeah, sure. But at any rate... Uh, I'll be fine. Uh, I stayed with it. And shortly after that, I had a breakdown. And uh, it was a day or two after the breakdown, the phone rang on a Saturday morning. And it was Dr. Frank Veninga, who had been president of the seminary in Sioux Falls when I was there. And he had, was pastoring in his sort of semi-retirement in Forest Park, Illinois, Forest Park Baptist Church. You've already heard many stories about that church from me. And uh, he said, Dave, I, I'm having to leave here. Uh, my wife is ill, and I, I just can't continue as pastor. And I thought of you, would you be interested in candidating for this position? I didn't have to think about that one, because I needed to get out. I just asked God to get me out of there. And here comes this call a day or two later, and I hung up the phone, and I said to Pat, we're going to Chicago. And we did. What was going on there is what's going on here. Who will roll away the stone? I had a problem, a big problem. My dream was shattered. The things, things were not going well. The church did go on for three and a half more years, but finally closed. Uh, it was a devastating thing to have happen. And I, I was going to solve it my way. My solution was to get a job, some kind of job, where I could support myself and still pastor that congregation. And uh, then, fortunately, I said no. And then God gave an answer. What's going on here in the Gospel of Mark and all the Gospels is there's a situation. It's a very difficult one. What are the facts? Here's what Mary Magdalene and Mary, uh, the mother of James and Salome, thought was true. First of all, Jesus was dead and buried. Right? Mary had been an eyewitness to this. Both things. She watched him die, and she watched him be put into the tomb. So that's a fact. The facts of the case are Jesus is dead and buried. 
Secondly, the body had not been properly prepared for burial. They were going to go finish that job. Now, that's interesting because the Gospel of John tells us that two men brought the body there, and they had brought spices and wrapped it up and had prepared it for burial. This is not the first time in history, nor the last time, when the women figured the men hadn't done it right. Okay? Facts. The facts is the men had taken care of it after their own lights. I mean, 75 pounds of spices were wrapped around Jesus' body, but the women knew that hadn't been done properly. It wasn't their job to do that. It was a woman's job to do that. So they were going to finish the job and prepare it properly. Then they knew that the tomb was sealed by a heavy stone, heavier than the three of them would be able to move. Those are the facts of the case. So what did they have to do in the light of this? Well, they had to complete the burial prep. And then they were going to need to get help to remove the stone. That's a, that's, it's just very similar to my situation. Look, things are not going well. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm going to have to get a job and, and do something. And then something else happens because the next thing that happens is the spirituality. They get there and the stone is rolled away. Somebody already took care of that. And there wasn't any prep necessary because Jesus was alive. So, by the way, the question of who will roll the stone away was completely irrelevant, wasn't it? How often do you ask yourself a totally irrelevant question? Because we really don't know what God is up to. God had already taken care of that. The tomb was empty. By the way, I don't think Jesus needed to have the stone rolled away to get out of that tomb. As later on, we see him walking through doors. He had no problem getting out. The stone was rolled away so that they could see in and see that the tomb was empty and that he was alive. Reality altered by God. This is a common theme in Scripture. I want to give you just some other examples here. Abraham and Sarah. What did they think was true? God had promised descendants. Abraham would be the father of many nations. That was the promise. But was the reality was they were getting old. In fact, they were old. Abraham was 99 years old. Sarah was 90, and God visits them. They don't have any children yet. So what could they do? And backing up a little bit from that particular visit from God, Abraham had already made a suggestion what they could, they could adopt if they couldn't have any children of their own. This is a very fine solution, a godly solution. We'll adopt Eliezer of Damascus, who's sort of my, my secretary, and he'll be our heir. He'll be the heir. He'll be the child of the promise. No, no, God says, no. A child born of your body shall be the heir. Oh, so then Sarah comes up, well, here, if I'm barren, maybe Hagar. See, this was done in those days. We'll have an adopted wife instead of an adopted child, and then there'll be another child, and they would later come to regret that because Abraham's descendants through Sarah and through Hagar are fighting to this day. The reality was this, and Abraham and Sarah both laughed at the idea that an old man and an old woman were going to have a baby. But that was God's joke, and you know what Isaac means? Yitzhak in Hebrew means he laughs. This is God's idea of humor. You say it can't be done. Well, let me show you. Everything is possible for God. There's nothing that God cannot do. There's another instance. 
good old Elisha and the situation of the Arameans. Elisha is basically acting as a spy and giving information to the king of Samaria about what the Arameans are up to because he's learning about this from the Lord. He's passing it on. And so the king of the Arameans decides something has to be done and the best way to handle this is just to get Elijah out of the way, kill him. So he sends the troops out and he surrounds, they surround Elisha's dwelling. And Elisha's uh, servant looks out and is petrified with fear because there's no way out. We're surrounded and what could they do? In fact, this is one of those cases where what must be done isn't very obvious. What must be done is I guess we're going to get killed. That wasn't a real good option. Then Elisha says, please open his eyes. And his eyes were open, the eyes of the servant, and he looked around, and they were, the mountains around them were surrounded with chariots of fire. Angels were around them. And so it wasn't that they were surrounded by Arameans, it's that the Arameans were surrounded by God's army. That was the reality, and, and so they were delivered. And the Arameans were led into Samaria, were captive, and sent on their way. Later on, there was a similar incident in the siege of Samaria. The city was surrounded. Were surrounded, they were starving to death. And what must be done? Well, the king decided, you know, Elisha's the guy who predicted this. He's really our enemy. They decide to kill Elijah. They blame God. They kill the messenger. And one of the things, although we've run out of food, we haven't run out of babies. So they were going to start boiling babies and have those for dinner. That's pretty severe. Kind of an ugly situation. But what was the reality? The reality was that God could get rid of the Arameans and he frightened them with noise and they fled leaving all their food behind and the problem was resolved. It just goes on and on. Are you picking up a theme here? Here's Peter in prison. We read about it in Acts 12, first 17 verses of Acts. Here's what everybody thought was true. James has already been arrested and killed. And so now we get the idea, we need to start getting rid of the apostles. That will put an end to Christianity. We'll nip it in the bud. So now Peter's in jail. He's chained between two guards. And uh, he's doomed. The next day, Herod's going to bring him out, and they're going to kill him. End of story. So what can the church do? They can't very well fight against all the soldiers that are around. All the church can do is pray. So good for them. This is a, the least fleshly of the solutions we've looked at here. This isn't like applying for a secular job so you can support yourself as a minister. This is a much more spiritual. Why don't we pray about this? Which I did do in my situation, and God answered that prayer. It's interesting to me, what were they praying for exactly? Because when God released Peter, they didn't believe it. He shows up knocking on the door, and they thought, oh, can't be. It must be his spirit or something. It's not him. It couldn't be him. But well, that's exactly what God did. The chains fell off Peter's hands. The guards were asleep. The door opened up. The door to the outside of the street opened up of its own accord. I think of that verse in the Psalms, for all things are they servants. You ever think about that? Even doors serve the Lord. This is the first known case of an automatically opening door. There was no electric eye or motor or anything else. It just opened of its own accord because the door served the Lord, which is more than can be said for some of us. It was obedient to God's command. I didn't even know they were conscious. Everything cooperates, except the church. When 
Peter gets to the house where they're meeting. Nobody comes to the door, at least not for a while. So here's the question. Who will roll away the stone? The application is this question for you. What's your stone that you think needs to be rolled away? What's in the way right now in your life? I don't know about you, but for me, it's always something. And if this one gets fixed, there'll just be another one at some point. Some of them are minor irritations, concerns, worries. Some of them are major, major things. Like, you know, for me, this could be the end of my career as a minister. I've been in it for 10 years. In 1980, when that happened, I started in 1970. Well, you know, I could have said to myself, that's longer than most guys make it. Did you know that, by the way? Most seminary graduates don't make it to 10 years in the ministry. You know why, by the way? Church politics. That's why most guys leave the ministry. They get fed up with the church politics. I was, that's why I went to church planning. I didn't like the church politics in Philadelphia. So It was major. Some of them are minor. You know, you get car trouble. I don't know about you guys how you feel about it. You can't fix your own car anymore. So you get car trouble. And it weighs on you. You know, it's minor though. But it might be like the mosquito. You get enough of those things, they'll kill you after a while. But all of you here probably have had the stone that needed to be rolled away. A lot of you here have one right now. When I say that, you've got something in mind. It's weighing on you. How are you going to get that thing out of the way? I would like to suggest that might be an irrelevant question. Just like it was for Mary and, and Mary and Salome. An irrelevant question. Because Jesus is alive. The problem is not the one they thought. So I'm just going to close with this thought today. The real problem that they had wasn't that Jesus was dead and buried behind a stone. It was that the stone was gone and Jesus was alive. And you think, how can that be a problem? Oh, that's a problem. That's a problem. The old hymn says, I serve a living Savior. He's in the world today. He is a living Savior. He is not my servant I am his servant, and he has things for me to do. He has ways for me to think. He has attitudes for me to adopt. And I am contrary to him by natural inclination. The problem isn't that there's a stone in the way. The problem is that we serve a living Savior who wants to transform us and use us for his glory. And we're kicking back. So let's stop that. My story, to go back to my illustration, was to finally be on my knees in prayer for a whole night, broken and giving up. Not giving up my job or my calling, but giving up all of my expectations and just letting God do what he wanted to do. And the phone rang, and we went to Chicago. And here I am today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I, I don't know what's in every heart here today, but I'm pretty sure that if there isn't a stone that needs to be rolled away, there will be one. Or there have been stones like that. We've all been there. We're all going to be there. Maybe some of them are all are there right now. 
So I pray, Heavenly Father, for our eyes to be opened like they were for Elisha's servant, that we understand that it isn't the enemy that has us surrounded, but you've surrounded the enemy. Help us, Lord, to realize that you can do anything, that whatever our problem might be, whatever that stone might be, you've already got a solution. It may already be in place, and all we need to do is to realize it. Lord, lift that burden from our heart today. Lord, help us to be broken before you, ready to accept your answer, ready to live for Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you're alive. In your name we pray, amen. Now may God himself, the God of peace, make you holy in every part and keep you sound in spirit, mind, and body without fault when our Lord Jesus Christ comes. He who calls you is to be trusted. He will do it. Amen.